Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm sure good to see Harry here today. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking back when uh, Aaron was a baby, uh, we were preaching in a church probably about this size uh, in Sutra. And the ladies, I always knew that my preaching may have lacked a certain dynamism because they found her much more interesting. Than... <laughs> There's an iconic scene in the, in the film, The Matrix, and the character in it is given the choice between returning to a kind of warm liquid pool in which they have diodes hooked up to him and he's kind of a living battery and staying there and he's kind of the villain character in the movie the Judas figure and of course he chooses to not live life in its reality but he chooses to go back into the fabricated world of the matrix I think that religion and thought is world preserving it can be preserving of a fabricated reality and the whole point of Christianity is to get us out of the matrix it is to be world deconstructing And the revolution that we're a part of, that we're called to be a part of, really is just that. It's to remake everything. And I think sometimes we miss the full nature of this revolution. To give you some ideas, we get several movements that have actually sprung up from Christianity, which we might just say, well, they questioned everything. Now, this is Rene Descartes, who's often pictured as the founder of modernity. He says, well, I just doubt everything. But the one thing he didn't doubt was reason or rationalism. And, of course, it had turned out his doubt was not doubting enough. Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel said, well, I think we just reduce everything to history. Even God is part of history. But, of course, he didn't reduce it enough. History turned out to be foundational. Karl Marx reorganized the world. I really think he's kind of a Christian heretic. And yet he thought material needs were foundational. Friedrich Nietzsche says God is dead and now we can wipe the horizon clean and we can start all over. Martin Heidegger said, well, let's question everything. And he said that it's our sacred duty to question everything. But of course, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Hitler are in a kind of line and Martin Heidegger is is a good Nazi. And so the two choices might seem to be between a kind of fundamentalism, my possession of God or power or knowledge, gives me a perspective of leverage. Or it might be that we reduce everything down or imagine that we can reduce it down to relativism. Don't worry that you don't know what is true and what is right and wrong. There are no objective standards. Everything is relative. And basically you decide your own worldview. This is really... Nietzsche and Heidegger. But it turns out that Nietzschean, Nazi, Marxist relativists are just another form of fundamentalists. There are Buddhist fundamentalists, there are Hindu, there's atheistic fundamentalists. And so the death of God in atheism, whether in the religion of Marx or Hitler, it makes it clear that that's not revolutionary enough. All of this to say that the great danger is to imagine that we have some place to stand and in doing so we end up just getting sucked into the ideology, the matrix, the social pipeline. And each of these figures was not radical enough. 
They ended up as their own sort of cultural elites and snobs. And of course the danger is we can do this with God and Christ, imagining that they're our possession, and this in some way gives us some sort of power over other people. First Corinthians, Paul calls the church to abandon the seeming realities attached to this world's knowing, wisdom, rhetoric, and law. Their world and our world is undone. And I think we are beginning to build then on the singular reality, the one true foundation. That's the way Paul describes it. Look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's read the first few verses there. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The rulers of this age, maybe like at Babel, imagine there is a unified culture and wisdom a shared knowledge or rhetoric or philosophy. And this shared world, they presume, is a kind of first order reality. Paul is saying that the logos of the cross nullifies this reality, these things considered absolute. And it makes way for a new kind of people and a new social order. The base of these things are in verse 8. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. That is, the things that we count as a first order reality turn out to be a nullity. And the things that we might imagine amount to nothing are a first order reality. And so the Christian gospel is about a tectonic shift in the structure of the universe or our perception of the universe. And it's focused around the events of the life of Jesus. To re be remade. Step one, though, will mean our world will have to be unmade. It will have to be subjected to the most radical questioning. Ludwig Feuerbach said it this way, and he saw all religion as a kind of human projection. He said, theology is anthropology. In other words, the objects of religion which in Greek we call theos, and in our language God, expresses nothing other than the essence of man. I'm going to give you three pictures here, three radical pictures, in which we can picture Christianity and religion even as immune, maybe, from this sort of manipulation that Feuerbach is picturing. Is our religion just something we're projecting onto God? I think that Christianity, like any other religion, might be described that way. Certainly that's true of idolatrous religion, right? Feuerbach's not wrong. Let me give you the opposite of that. And this is religion, this is uh, uh, Mercia Iliade. I have trouble with saying his name. He says that religion is sui generis. If you go to the university, either north or south, you're going to study Mercia Iliade. And what he's going to say about religion, I think, we might, in the beginning, imagine this is the case, but I'm going to suggest he's wrong. 
That is, he says that religion is sui generis. And what he means by this is that religion is an entity unto itself. That certain portions of human culture and experience are somehow distinct from historical pressures and influences. And so the primary vehicle for articulating this assumption is then religious experiences are sui generis. That is that they're their own cause and belong to their own unique category. This is a quote from Iliade. Religion is defined as a human seeking and responding to what is experienced as holy. It is a set of beliefs, practices, and social structures grounded in a people's experience of what they regard as ultimately real and that accommodate their emotional, intellectual, and social needs. And so the idea here is that the religious perspective, religion, the religious experience, is free of social, economic, and political interference. The values one holds are grounded in some sort of inherent access or structure to reality. And whatever this inherent structure might be, it's not touched by history. When I went and taught at a little college here in Missouri, they handed me a textbook. And the textbook on religion, this was what was being taught by Marcia Iliade. And they were saying that as a good Christian, this is what we should believe. I think this is precisely wrong because Christ is incarnate, right? Christ comes to us in history. Christ comes to us in a particular language, at a particular time, in a particular place. The assumption of Eliade and his students, or at least the assumption of this method, suggests that historical and empirical methods are only necessary to look at the manifestation of the religion, but the religion in some way escapes these forces. That it's, you know, this is the meaning of sui generis, that you cannot in some way attain the object of study. I think this is precisely wrong, and we need to be aware that Christianity is a historical, social, cultural religion, right? Now let me give you the other extreme here, and this is Peter Berger. Peter Berger has now passed away, but he was at, I think he was at the University of Chicago, but he, he talks about religion as world construction. He says every human society is an, an enterprise of world building. Religion occupies a distinctive place in this enterprise. And so as opposed to the sui generis notion of religion, here religion is a world construction and it ties religion into every aspect of human society. And so society is a dialectical phenomenon, you know, where the sui generis would have nothing to do with politics or economics or the society. Here the idea is it has everything to do with that and it is only that. That a human producer, you know, he think of the idol maker in Isaiah. He takes a piece of wood and he saws it in two. With one half he fashions an idol and then he turns and he starts a little fire with the other half and then he turns back and says, oh, there's, there's a God. That is, he externalizes it, he objectifies it, and then he internalizes it. And that's religion. Now, interestingly, Peter Berger was a Christian. I'm not quite sure how he fit his Christianity into this. But the dialectical process, then, is just 
everything is social construction. You know, externalization is the outpouring of human beings into the world. This is the physical, mental, everything that we do. Human beings are somehow understood as resting within themselves, within their own constructs. This would be the opposite of an Augustinian view that we are just closed within our interior selves. The objectification is the attainment. You know, this acts back on us, that the products of society in some way act back upon us. Money is a nice example, or a bad example. Does it have any intrinsic value? Well, it acts back upon us, and we internalize this value. And religion, then, in this process, is accounted for as the thing that holds it all together. He says it's the sacred canopy. That the sacred or numinous begin as perceptions externalized, projected upon the skies and upon persons and natural objects, and they become sacred, they become reified. And then when the society experiences any kind of, uh, it totters or threatens to come undone, well then the religion comes to the rescue. The gods and the realm that they occupy are the sacred canopy that hold things together. I think we're in a moment of crisis when our gods are falling over in this culture. I'm thinking here of the image of the, the idol tipping over and they, they reach out to set him upright. And very often we have a picture of God as a kind of judgmental, easily angered adult who we don't want to offend by asking questions, who we want to you know, remain in the tradition. And I think that maybe we need to be a little more radical. Luther's phrase is that he says that God died on the cross. Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel picked this up and he said, yes, God did die on the cross. And he made the whole process a historical process. And then Friedrich Nietzsche comes along and says, yes, God died on the cross, there is no God. The God of the philosophers, the God constituting modernity, the God of reason, this is what Nietzsche was talking about. He was really talking about a misunderstood notion of God. I think he thought of the Christian God as synonymous with the God of the culture, the God of philosophy. And I'm afraid that we can make that mistake and we may need to say with Friedrich Nietzsche, God is dead. Because there is an understanding of God that we need to get rid of. And the death of this God, it's not enough. You know, we've already said it's not enough to simply say, oh, with Marx or Hitler, that God is dead because, as Nietzsche himself says, atheism does not rid us of his shadow. I think Christ, rightly understood, is the only means of overcoming a false notion of the infinite. And the Bible, rightly understood, is radically deconstructionist. The sui generis reading of religion is very much connected to a sui generis notion of Christianity. That the church somehow exists apart from society and culture, and that culture has its own innate essence. You know, this was the Constantinian mistake. The fusion of church and culture. And the loss of a place from which we might critique culture. The church is a community of deconstruction, a place in which all the idols, every ideology, all the foundations are undone, remade. If we imagine culture, politics, the social 
construction of reality is overturned. This is Reinhold Niebuhr's questions about Christ and culture. He gives us five options. I think they're all wrong. Christ against culture, Christ above culture, Christ in paradox with culture. In all of his questioning, there is no notion that culture may not be a reality unto itself. That is, there is this kind of projection that it is an entity unto itself and around which Christ must maneuver. A two-kingdom sort of view. He was a good Lutheran, after all. Think of our good Lutheran brethren in Germany during the rise of National Socialism. The head of the confessing church was Niemöller, who had thoroughly absorbed the notion of the two kingdoms. And with this came a willingness to bend. He's saying, well, yeah, we have the world of politics and society. And Adolf Hitler, he's a pretty good politician, isn't he? He's a pretty good guy, a reasonable man. And if we can just talk to him. And though he provided leadership and resistance through the Pastors' Emergency League, set up to help those who in the church Hitler even says well if you're of Jewish descent you can't be a part of the state church Niemöller does it, in fact object to that but his own account provides insight into his stunted and very slow relinquishing of a German sensibility he was a German nationalist he had been a U-boat captain and he would put it in a sermon this way he says what is the reason for their obvious punishment, which has lasted for thousands of years. Dear brethren, the reason is easily given. The Jews brought about the Christ of God to the cross. That is, Niemöller realizes later that he too was anti-Semitic. And he would confess and repudiate his anti-Semitism. He would embrace a full pacifism. But this was long after he might have drawn a firmer line. And he writes a poem about his own failed theology, his own failed thought. The name of the poem is, Who is My Neighbor? First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. The question I'm raising is if the evangelical religion reduplicates this sense that Niemöller describes that we will have to repent of. Is it the case that this religion does not pertain to the cruelties that are being done in the name of God with its imputed sense of righteousness, of a mostly future salvation, of a continual sense of being pitted against the self. The very notion of an infinite satisfaction required and an infinite guilt. The resolution to the problem is there in Germany also. In a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who began his theological journey in his PhD dissertation. He was just uh, in his early 20s. I don't even think he'd turned 21 yet. And he argues that the Holy Spirit is a social spirit. He says, man is always who he is in community, giving birth to a new sort of humanity through the historical communion of the church. He says, this is not a mystical, heavenly, invisible community, but the actual presence of God, Christ existing in church community, is his little phrase he uses again and again. 
in which the person of God opens his self-communion to the world. And a key part of the point of this communion is to give us a place from which we might critique and question. And of course Bonhoeffer was, even as a young man, was the first to stand out publicly against Hitler and of course would die a martyr's death. God can take it. He can take the questions and culture requires our questioning. I think what Bonhoeffer had ascertained from the beginning of his journey, the idea of the church as a community through which we can critique and question and stand and that the questioning it is indeed our sacred obligation. Bonhoeffer said that the success, the progress of the church will depend upon the defeat of German nationalism. I wonder if we stand in the same place, if the success of the church will depend upon the defeat of American nationalism. It was an insight that Niemöller reached way too late. And where the church is co-opted by a political populism, it is conformed to the worst atrocities imaginable. And I am afraid we are in the midst of the repeat of this failure. If God's Son is not spared from the cross, is there any idea, any aspect of culture, any notion of God, any part of ourselves that is too sacred to not be subjected to the deconstructing power of the cross of Christ? Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.